Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to our last episode of Better Words for this season. Yay, and also Merry Christmas, because by the time this comes out, it will have been Christmas, so we hope you had a lovely Christmas. Yes, we certainly do. I know, we're actually recording this on Christmas Eve. I know. So Before... I Yeah, I will explain later, but I don't really have a recommendation because um, we've actually had to... We, I would usually be able to say, Caitlin, let's record a bit closer, <laughs> but she's travelling, so... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going away on Christmas, so... I'm not yeah, finished. Yeah, no, normally we're yet. like, ah, I'm not finished the book. Let's <laughs> record like a couple in like, you know, at the last possible minute. Yeah. Um, so technically we're recording this like a few days early than we normally would be. Um But yes, it's Christmas Eve. This is a fun insight back. It's I'm about to do my very favourite Christmas tradition, which is watch Carols by Candlelight on TV with my family, um, who are interstate this year. But um we like have the bingo cards. Michelle and Jack have played this so with us cool. before at least yeah. once. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think everyone who watches Carols by Candlelight on TV in Australia makes fun of it a bit, and we do really, really, really enjoy it. I don't know. It is definitely my most consistent Christmas story. The Joe, um, we watched recently that just makes me laugh. It's so like it's peak Australian Christmas culture. Is that um, Kath and Kim movie where Michael Bu- where they where Kath and Kel dance oh my God, with Michael yes. Bublé, and it's peak. It's like at the Carol, yeah, and it's like Rhonda Birchmore and the Wiggles and Michael Bublé. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I feel like Carol's I know, I by Candlelight isn't either. as big of a thing here, I want to say. Like, it's not, you know, in Australia. Well, I think it's an Australian thing because we can be outside. Yeah. It's like nice summer evenings to sing Christmas carols all together. Yeah, it's and all the TV stations And then there are bigger own, ones. All the TV stations have their own rival Carols in the yeah. Domain, Carols by Candlelight, like all this sort of stuff. So. Yeah, in the big cities. Yeah. But it's such a community thing as well. Like we always went, um, you know, in Rockhampton to like the local ones and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But I think, yeah, it, it can't, you can't be outside in the cold. I think it must be a different... Yeah. Uh, that must be why. I think it must be. I just haven't seen anything... Yeah, I don't know. Although it was really nice a few weekends ago, we had carol singers outside our shop and they were very good. So that was very sweet. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, I feel like that's the, the version is like little groups just kind of go around. I don't think people do that oh, here. No. I don't. Oh, I mean, I don't think anyway. people do that. Not that here, I've ever witnessed. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's actually been quite warm lately, like warm for winter. So it, it feels a bit weird. It feels like it's like early October again. Um, it doesn't feel like super cold or anything. Um, but... It just on the weather updates. Um, the twenty first was the shortest day of the year, so we now get a little bit of extra light every single day, which is quite yeah. nice because it is getting side. depressing when it is dark at four pm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. why don't you go first? Because as I've mentioned, I don't have a recommendation. So you talk away to your heart's okay. content and then I'll add some extra stuff at the end. 
<laughs> okay. Well, my recommendation um, doesn't feel very Christmassy. Doesn't feel very summery, even for me. Doesn't even tie in with the ep- with the interview that you'll hear after this. But you know, this is the end of year chaos. Um, but it's you could be so pretty, which is Holly Bourne's latest YA novel, and it is so good and is total is is exactly the kind of like feminist angry kind of thing that we often just really love Michelle and like kind of go you know you just like get into it and you're like ah like reviews have said like oh the handmaid's tale for the instagram era um or like if you you know because it's quite new like if you loved barbie you know you'll love this yeah. you know all of these things that kind of call on this like all of this stuff that women and girls are angry about all the time Mm. and it's written in this way um basically the story is it's dual perspectives two teenage girls one who um is not embraces but it like follows all of the society's rules and expectations for girls and for women which um and again, like the language is like also interesting. That makes it, it makes you think things in a different way, um, because it's it's supposed to be kind of this like slightly exaggerated, like dystopia kind of world. But like it barely is. We all, do, you know, yeah, <laughs> this is so realistic. But so she, um, you know, barely eats, works out all the time. They call it body prayer. Um, wears heaps of, um, mask products, which is, like, all the makeup and skincare products, and, like, some of the different phrases for different things is so interesting. Um, but there's all of that, and she's, like, officially a pretty, um, which is what all the beautiful young girls get called, and teenagers, and I believe into, like, sort of young adulthood are in their just right years (laughs) and if you are not a pretty and like you don't do all of those things even though it's a choice and they choose that you're an objectionable which is what our other character is because she doesn't wear mask products and kind of rejects all of this um and and then when you like are a slightly older woman if you're like trying to maintain being a pretty to to risk becoming objectionable and then becoming an invisible which Mm. is like when society will completely ignore you and you're worthless um yeah it's like the yeah the language is so crazy but just like the language about like mask products which is just makeup or like when they talk about um your hair having no pigment and it just like going gray Mm. like (laughs) Or, like, um, to women who try to maintain their pretty status, go in for cutting, like, cosmetic surgeries. Mm. And, like, the language around, like, all of these things and, like, everything they follow is the doctrine. And, like, even all the boys um, who are just, like, awful, at, you know, <laughs> obviously. Um, but, like, even when they're just, like, watching porn at school, they're like, oh, they're watching smart like everything has like a different name Mm. um which is so in some in a lot of ways it's just like a more 
aggressive name in some way, like cutting as mm. opposed to like cosmetic elective surgery or yeah. cosmetic surgeries. Yeah. Um, like you go in for a cutting yeah. <laughs> and get all of this stuff done. Mm. It's crazy. But yeah, so basically, I mean, it's really compelling because the story is these two girls who are compl- so different, um, both working to get a scholarship so they can go to education, mm-hmm. <laughs> like college or university. Um, but they are also in their final year of schooling, so everything is leading up to the ceremony, mm-hmm. um, which by the time we got there, I was like, oh, so it's like prom. <laughs> but I was like, <laughs> yeah. what's the ceremony? <laughs> right. yeah. Because everything has kind of a different name, but it was like about who your date was going to be and what you are going to wear and like who mm-hmm. wins the ceremony. Um. And, yeah, and basically our two main characters um, meet when Belle, who is a pretty, um, is, you know, kind of lightly assaulted on the way to school. Um, And this man is, like, trying to be like, get in the car, I'll give you a ride. And she's like, I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, And Joni, um, who is arguably and objectionable, um, tries to help um and intervene and then they kind of keep and they're both going for the scholarship and they kind of keep clashing with each other but then getting to know each other Mm. and Belle starts to like question or everything in this kind of world around her and Joni also you know learns a bit more because it's easy for her when her mother has rejected it all and just that's what she's been taught yeah. as well to be yeah. like how, how how do you not see you know all of this like all, all that's wrong with it and everything I don't know it's crazy yeah you would really really like it Michelle yeah okay. obviously it's <laughs> but like it's yeah. it's so good but I think yeah it, like I'm trying to think of other things like uh like Louise like I think another review said like only if you like Louise O'Neill Laura Bates Mm -hmm. yeah and like Laura Bates with like the burning and like her other work as well and then like I think about things like Promising Young Woman the Mm -hmm. movie Mm -hmm. um and and yeah Barbie you know (laughs) with that speech that America Ferrara gives I'm like yeah like let's (laughs) yeah yeah ah amazing it's really it's all of it is explored in like a really interesting way through these two teenage girls like getting to know each other and viewing their world Starting in to completely like different ways it. as well mm. yeah 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 oh, amazing that does sound good um yeah so i don't have a recommendation but i can tell you a few things i can tell you what i'm currently reading and which I'm loving and I can't wait to finish and if we had recorded tomorrow I definitely would have been able to talk about it (laughs) but I also thought wouldn't it be fun if on the final episode of the season I give you some tales from the bookshop yes so please do (laughs) so a few fun ones that spring to mind um so yesterday at work I um someone was buying the Christmas Appeal by Janice Hallett and I said oh have you read her other stuff I love her stuff and um because I was trying to sell the Christmas appeal because obviously things like that don't do that well after Christmas so I've been trying to recommend it to lots of people so um 
yeah, she was like, oh, I have it. And I was like, oh, the appeal is great. It's okay. You don't necessarily need to have read it, but it just adds an extra layer. And I put the rest of her books through. And then maybe like an hour later, she came back into the store and was like, um, you mentioned there was another book for this. Can you get that for me, please? <laughs> um, so then I sold her the appeal as well. And then um, someone was buying The Curious Case of Alperton Angels. So I recommended The Appeal because I was like, oh, have you read The Appeal? And she's like, yes. And I was like, oh, well, there's The Christmas Appeal. Um, and she bought that. And then another person, we have a buy one, get one half price off the Alpine Angels is on that. She had one and I always say, oh, do you want anything else in the buy one, get one half price? And um, she mm. was like, oh, oh, I don't know. And I was like, oh, I can recommend something if you want. So we went over and I was looking at, and I was like, what sort of stuff do you like to read? And um, she was like, oh, like historical stuff. And I was looking at the table and I was like, oh, well, these two. And she's like, got them. And I was like, lessons in care. She's like, got that. I was like, oh, read that. And she's like, you know, yeah. had read so much. I was like, oh, do you like thrillers? Oh, she's like, oh, sometimes. I was like, do you like a true crime podcast? She's like, oh, yeah. I was like, okay. So here's the curious case of Alton Angels, cults, true crime. It's written <laughs> like this. And she got that. Um yeah, so that was really cute. Another person, again, buying um, Alperton Angels, I was like, do you like the appeal? She's like, oh, yes. And I was like, well, here's the Christmas appeal. So I've done a lot of hand selling of Janice Hallett's books. I'm like her number one fan, obviously. Um, not my <laughs> hand selling, but yesterday someone did a click and collect and I printed it out and I it was Happy Head by Josh Silver and I was like, oh, yay. So got that ready for them. Yay. And then when they came in, I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite books. Loved it. So good. He's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, another I've recommended a lot of uh, Beth O'Leary as well. So yesterday someone again was like, um, asking me about different books that they were looking for gifts and she's like and can you recommend anything for me to read and I was like what kind of stuff do you like reading and she's like mm, I don't know really and I was like what do you watch on tv <laughs> um and we was and she was like mm, crime yeah. drama so I took her to the crime section and I showed her the appeal and she's like mm, I don't know maybe something a bit different um light-hearted I was like oh do you like rom-coms and she's like yeah and I was like okay well here's the flat share and even my husband was watching the last episode and he was like oh I can see why people like this because it's more than just romance and I was like there's a toxic ex I was like showing because it was the uh movie like the tie-in cover so I was the like TV tie-in this yeah. person needs to get away from her toxic ex this person needs to get money for his brother who's in jail they share a bed but they never meet <laughs> And she's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. It's a crazy setup. I know. It's, and I was yeah. like, it's wonderful. It's so good. Um, it's so lovely. And having just watched it, um, I was like, oh, you do have to get Paramount Plus to watch it. But, you know, you can do the seven-day free trial. You can watch that over Christmas. Um, but I was like, having just watched it again, I want to reread it again. And I've just bought it myself, which I have. Um, so, yeah. And another really funny one this week that is like, me peeking as a bookseller is someone came in and said um <laughs> asked my boss do you have um the rubaiyat something or other and I I like overheard and I was serving a customer I was like finishing up and I was like do you mean the rubaiyat of Omar Kamal or whatever and he's like yeah that's it I was like the only reason I know this is because of one of Australia's until last year most fascinating unsolved crimes was the Somerton Man which, Caitlin, I kind of expect you to know because you're from Adelaide and it's like the most Adelaide thing ever. Um, so I was like, the only reason I know this is because of the Summerton Man and it was only solved last year and 
it's the Rubaiyat of Omar Kamal, something like that. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. And I was like, we don't have it in stock, sorry. But he's like, can you write that other thing down for me? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, it was oh, only man. solved last year with DNA testing. There were all these theories that he was like a spy. So basically, Caitlin, because I can see from your face that you don't know um, that this no, man in the 1950s, this man was found on Glenelg Beach. People thought like he was sleeping, but turned out he was dead. And they found an obscure book of Persian love poems the Rubaiyat of Omar Kaman or whatever. Oh. Um, no, I'm saying Rubaiyat of Omar something. Um, and they I found mean, this... If you've said it wrong, you've said it wrong. I've said it wrong a million now, times. So. so they found this obscure book of Persian love poems, but in the back was like this code and they were like, oh my God, is he a spy? Like this is during the Cold War. He had really muscular wow. legs of, they thought like a ballet dancer. <laughs> um, he, they, they found this suitcase related to him and they couldn't find anything else. And it was this really obscure mystery that ensued for 70 years. And I'm going to link the articles to the ABC because last year people might remember this because last year it was in the news because it was solved and with DNA testing and familial testing they finally finally found who it was and it was just an ordinary broke who had quite an unfortunate life and died and wasn't murdered and all this stuff but like all the conspiracy theories were so much wow. more exciting, obviously. But until last year, like I would say the summer to men is if, if, if someone said you can know what happens in one, you know, like a lot of people will be like, oh, I want to know what happened to Madeleine McCann or I want to know what happened to John Bonet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be like, I need to know what's the go with the summer to men. Like that would be the one unsolved case what I wanted. And deal? it's solved. Yeah. It's solved. It's amazing. It's and they, and then so the ABC. You can pick a new answer. I know. <laughs> but the ABC did this whole, um, <laughs> like Australian story where they actually traced back this guy's family and found photos of him and stuff like that. His name was Carl Webb. He was just an ordinary dude, but um, it's just been this enduring mystery. Anyway, he like drowned or no, no, he, no, he was just found sitting. That's why they thought like he'd been poisoned or something. There was like the contents of his stomach and all this sort of stuff. Like he was just dead on the beach. Like, so he just lay down and died on the beach. He wasn't, he was sitting, he was like sitting, uh, leaning against a wall. And people thought that he'd been poisoned or something. So if he wasn't dead, why was it a cold case? He was dead, but people thought he'd been poisoned. And then they couldn't find okay, any. But then how did him. he die was what I was saying. I don't think they've ever figured that out, really. Because obviously, like, there oh, are some okay. poisons and stuff that... I mean, maybe he just... I mean, they'd know if he yeah. had a heart attack or whatever. But, like, you know, obviously there are some poisons that... Um, don't stay in your system very long and stuff like that. So um, read the yeah, read the news article. It's been long enough now it to will not explain. figure that out. Yeah, because there was just all this conspiracy okay. of like, you know, was he this mm. Russian spy? There was this code in the book and the because the, the book was found, yeah. there was like, he had a torn off page of it in his jacket and then the book was found in someone's car nearby. Like someone might have put it through the window at the beach and it's just... It's bizarre. It's so crazy. So anyway, anyone who listens to anything about that, any any true crime podcast, like the first thing they will mention is the the piece of paper and that it was from this really obscure book. And so, yeah, when this guy came in asking about it, I was like, oh, are you asking because you know about the summer to men? He's like, what? 
And I was like, oh, let me tell you about the rabbit hole you're about to go down. Because my my boss was like, the what? Sorry. And I was like, oh, it's this. I found it. And, and afterwards, my, so I was like, oh, sorry to butt in. He was like, no, it's fine. I think the customer went away with a better experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was just really funny. Oh, and, yeah, man. he was like, came over to the counter. He was like, can you write that other thing down for me? I'll look that up. I was like, yeah, here, it's the Summerton Man. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just really funny. So funny. Um, I've recommended I'll Be Gone in the Dark a lot of times to anyone who's buying true crime books um because we know that i love that i've recommended there's um obviously well actually i was have to say obviously i've mentioned this i haven't i've mentioned it in the Substack, and i'm going to be talking about it when we talk about our favorite tv of the year but there was a crime drama um called the longest shadow which was on over here and i've recommended the book that that's been based on um mm-hmm. a couple of times and Oh, recommended The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, which is by Matt Cain, who we're talking to today, um, because they love like the Thursday Murder Club and stuff. And I was like, oh, I think you'll actually really love it. It's a very different story, but it's about this man who's retiring and it's really, really sweet. So if you like that sort of character, like you'll absolutely love this. Um, and yeah, those ones this week, like the the Rubaiyat and like, lots of Janice Howlett yesterday I was like I have peaked as a bookseller I love this um so yeah (laughs) gotta push that Christmas book I know but yeah genuinely I'm like it it is it is brilliant and so anyone who's buying her stuff I'm like oh if you like her stuff have you seen this because it's just come out been really enjoying that but yeah uh work has been manic hence I've not had the bandwidth to finish the book that I'm currently reading, which was a recommendation from one of my lovely bookseller colleagues, and it is Wayward by Amelia Hart, um, because I I think she sort of mentioned it, and, and I was like, oh, that looked sort of, the cover, the hardback cover looks sort of fantasy I was like I don't really read fantasy she's like no it's not it's this story of three women like sort of three different timelines and I was like "Ooh, that sounds like Kate Morton who you know I like because we have you know multiple timelines and the story sort of weaves between all of them yeah so Wayward by Amelia Hart I'm absolutely loving it there is a 16 19 point of view which is a woman who is accused of witchcraft um and then there is a 1940s point of view I think a descendant of that woman who it always feels a bit strange. There are rumours she doesn't know her mother because she believes her mother died in childbirth, but there are these rumours. They live in quite a big house. Her dad's like a lord, so they have like servants and stuff and that she's heard rumours of like her mum being strange and her dad never talks about her. And um, so, but she feels this um, real affinity with like, wildlife and things and um the bit that I've just got to something very traumatic happens to her and you know it just sort of um is unfolding but then in the present day there is a woman who um has escaped her abusive partner and is the great niece of the 1940s um woman Violet um so she doesn't have any other family and inherited the sort of cottage that Violet lived in so she has kept that Mm. secret fled to that and once she's there she's starting to try and untangle things Um, she has her own traumas in her past but she 
is starting to sort of connect with wildlife and stuff in a way that she hadn't before and sort of come out of herself a little bit and um yeah I'm really I I can't wait we're out all morning this morning but I can't wait to come home and finish it because it's so good but I don't want to call it a recommendation in case I don't love it in the end if something happens because I've had that happen before with books where like 90% of it you're like this is brilliant and then at like the last 20 pages have ruined it for me um so that's my currently reading and some tales from the bookstore awesome well, I think some tales from the bookstore is a very fun thing to end on. And <laughs> maybe you can update everyone when we do our wrap-up episode in January yeah. if you ended up liking Wayward or not. <laughs> yeah, I will. Well, oh, God, this this whole, like, Oscars category of books that we've got is brilliant, but also hard to pick what's going to be in all the things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah in case anyone – I said this on I said this on Stubstack the other day. I was like, I know lots of best of lists are coming out now, but we still have reading to do. I mean, you're on. I mean, I'm. I've not got much reading left in me for the rest of the year because I'm not on holiday. I'm working a lot. Um, but you're you yeah. probably going to power through a couple of books. Like, what if you end up changing know. your mind? I've still got an entire week of this year left. I finished yeah. a book today. Like. For me, it's more like could, what I movies and maybe stuff. Maybe two more. I'm I might like, not. For me, but. it's like what movies can I cram in? Are there any other TV shows? Should I try and rewatch a few bits? You know, like I really want to think about that, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and also like this is the quiet time to actually have more thinking time about yes. what our favourites of the year are. Yeah, yeah. Not in the middle of December when everything is crazy. I don't know how people do that. It's not over till it's over. That's what we say. And that's exactly. why we're not recording until mid-January. So <laughs> after this episode, we will be back in your feed then. But we hope that you love our chat with Matt Kane. We had so much fun doing this chat. I have been waiting to have Matt on the podcast for a little while and trying to time it with book releases and stuff like that. So we are, we were like thrilled that we were almost the first interview or one of the first interviews that he did about one love which is coming out in january and Mm -hmm. we will shout about it again on our socials and on substack and stuff just to remind you because we don't often do our interviews so far in advance from the book being published but one love will be out in january yeah and even when we're releasing this it's like the very end of december so we're not yeah. that far ahead no we're like yet, but we're but still like a month it is away unusual yeah for us. it's we're like normally late yeah <laughs> exactly and we can be like get your book now um so yeah and if you're in the uk like pre-order it if you're listening to this as it comes out um and actually if you are in the uk i should link to this i'm pretty sure that matt is doing signed copies for everyone who pre-orders um online from gaze the word in london so if I can find the link to that I will send a link but um yeah we were thrilled to be able to do this interview and we had so much fun and it's a delightful note to end on as well um so yeah also update since we talked as well obviously it's been the strictly final since we had this chat with Matt and I'm gonna update yeah so I will spoiler it and say that Ellie and Vito won but it was Ellie and Vito and um, Leighton and Nikita in the final um, along with Bobby and Diane and Leighton and Nikita's show dance was you've never had a friend like me and it was so good so I will link um, a video because it was just 
perfection. It was so wonderful. Um, and I'm sure that Matt would have loved it after talking to him about this. So, yeah, yeah enjoy. And I will confirm that Michelle sent me about 10 clips after, after. I got off the interview <laughs> I've been with so Matt. So but how I, wonderful I, I, were I they? I had been behind... Yeah, they were yeah. excellent. I know. I'd been behind on Strictly this year because Michelle hadn't been harassing me so much with it. But um, <laughs> oh, it was but worth no, the wait, was, though. But so yeah, I, I would love to be into it more. But yeah, it's hard when you live in Australia, though. And I know that yeah. from, you know, being. But yeah, I, yeah, from Leighton and Nikita's. Yeah. I'm going to send it to you now. Their final dance was. amazing and I'm pretty sure they did get four tens for it so yeah it was absolute perfection um so yeah but such a delightful note to end on we really hope you enjoy this episode and um Merry Christmas and well it's been Christmas but Happy New Year Happy New Year Our guest today is an author, broadcaster, and former journalist. He was Channel 4's first culture editor, editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine, and currently a presenter for Virgin Radio Pride UK. He grew up near Bolton in England's north and now lives in London. Today, we are really excited to discuss his upcoming novel, One Love. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Kane. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> it is our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> You've said such nice things about my books before that it's very nice to meet both of you. I'm so excited. I've been waiting oh. for the next book so that we could like the timing to be right to have you on the podcast um, because I just... I was like, this yeah. is going to be perfect for us. Like, yeah. And also, Caitlin and I have been messaging each other, like, about the book and stuff, and we've both been like, you seem so nice, we can't wait to talk to you. So, Yeah. <laughs> well, can I just say, um, I'm really excited to speak to people about this new book because it isn't out yet when we're recording. And <laughs> I think this is mm. the second interview I've done about it. So I'm only just starting to hear what people think. And it's really interesting for me because it's a book that I've been writing for, I was writing for about four and a half years and I had to fight to get it published and get it out. Um, Not because my publisher wasn't interested, they wanted to do other books first. Um, And it's just Mm. been, actually having that extra time ended up being good because I worked and reworked it. But um, what's really interesting now is that it's starting to be out in the world and people are responding to it. Everybody is saying it's my best book and everybody is saying really positive things. So, yeah, it's great and it's lovely talking about it. Uh, well, we can't wait to, although well, so I have exciting. to say, I'll always have such a soft spot for Albert from Albert Entwistle, because um, I just love him and I just love that story as well. So that's always got a soft spot for me, but I absolutely loved reading One Love. Um, it's And it surprised me in a lot of ways. Like it, yeah, some things I thought were going to happen, you really surprised me. <laughs> that's oh, all. good. Well, suddenly enough. Funnily enough, I do like twist and tur- twists and turns. As long as they are kind of true to the spirit of the book and they're not just put in there for the sake of getting mm. the gas. So yeah. I did. Yeah, it has to make yeah, sense. It yeah, it does, doesn't it? It has to feed into the themes you're exploring and the message you want to send out. Mm. But I did work hard. There's one twist in particular that was always a part of it. And my agent read an early draft and said, 
she thought it needed one more little, um, one, something else. So I put in another twist. Obviously, we can't talk about the twist without giving anything away. <laughs> no, we can't give anything away. Um, and we're, I feel like we're speaking in code or yeah. something at the no. moment. So maybe to, before we go into, again, without spoilers, but before we go into it a bit more, you know, I'm sure you need to keep working on this, but what's, tell us about One Love. Tell us the elevator pitch. Oh, that's really interesting because I did a big event. I addressed the Cambridge Union and they were asking for tips and because there were a lot, there was a creative writing society, a lot of students who want to be writers in the audience. And one of the tips I gave them was always be ready with an elevator pitch because, you know, when somebody says, what's your book about? You need to tell them. Right, so here's mine. Yeah, and quickly. And quickly. <laughs> so I'll give you my quick one, one for one love. Yeah. It's about two boys who meet at Manchester University when they leave their small towns behind. They become best friends. And then 20 years later, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their friendship, they go back to Manchester for Manchester Pride, which is a four-day celebration. But what one of the friends doesn't realise is the other one has been in love with him for the whole time. And what you get is the friendship unravelling, coming to a head in ways neither could have expected over the course of that weekend, whilst a past tense narrative fills you in on everything that has happened to them since they met. How was that? Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Excellent. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. yeah. You've got the elevator yeah. pitch down, yeah. ready for, you know, to say that a million times yeah. as you keep doing <laughs> interviews and events for One Love. But yeah, oh, it's, so it's such an, it's such a good premise. I love the concept of like at the same time, this, four, you know, this like, yeah, four days while they're there, everything that's happening, this like big, big moment in their friendship, but then it goes back. Well, um, and you get all of that background information as well. Funnily enough, Caitlin, um, thank you. And um, I, part of the inspiration for it was David Nichols' One Day, which is one of my favourite books of all time. Mm. And that was a similar theme of kind of blurred boundaries between friends and lovers. But if you remember, there was the high concept Mm of the same day um, every year over 20 years. And um, so I wanted to introduce a little element of kind of, you know, high concept with form, but also, um, I don't know, I felt like I had something to say because I thought there's all these books and films about are they friends, are they lovers, but actually, the most intense situation for that dilemma is usually when people are of the same sex, because actually it's quite unusual for when you get to a certain age for a straight man and a straight woman to be close friends. It is when you're younger at university. Yeah. And then um, once you get married. And it's all complicated and what's going on. But yeah, yeah. that fades, it doesn't it? Have we been in those situations it's very before? uncommon. I think we have, Caitlin. <laughs> Well, we don't need to talk about this. We do. But, you know. Well, I have have two, which is partly what inspired me. But I did think, look, people are really interested in this. If I look at it through a gay lens, you're just sharpening things up and amping up the intensity. Um, But it will still be of resonance and relevance to everyone. So um, that was kind of the thinking behind it. 
And actually, if people are listening to this and thinking that sounds good, that sounds interesting, um, I'm sure you'll agree with this recommendation. But Laura Kay's book from this year, Wild Things, obviously deals with that with two women, but in a in a completely, obviously completely different style. And I would say um, I felt like One Love was like a bit more of a, a serious and emotional read around that. Like I feel like Wild Things is a bit more rom com and like really like fun not that one love wasn't fun but yeah it felt like a little bit more serious and stuff but definitely if people want to keep exploring those sorts of blurred lines things um wild things is great well can i just say michelle um i have read all of laura Kerr's books (laughs) i love them all and i loved wild things wholeheartedly agree with that recommendation and no, Laura, and she's brilliant. And actually, her books get better each time. But yeah, Wild Things is, um, there is a little parallel there thematically with One mm. Love. Can I ask the two of you? I would love to know what you think because um, everybody, so my last two books for Headline, my big publisher in the UK, have been um, some, there's a similar spirit, similar themes but there's, they're a bit more warm, cuddly and huggy. And One Love is a bit grittier and there's more of an edge. And there's more of a sexiness without giving too much away. And um, for me, everything comes out of here. I'm touching my heart for people who, can, <laughs> who are listening. Yeah. Um, everything comes out of the same place. So to me, they all feel very similar. But... Um, my publisher has said a few times that One Love is very different and, um, you know, we're targeting a slightly different readership. How are people going to respond? So, like I say, so far, everybody seems to be raving about it. It's amazing. But um, do you think, what did you think of the kind of the grit and the edge and the swearing and the stuff in bars and the sexiness? <laughs> I mean, loved it, but yeah, it did feel like, I mean, I haven't, I've actually got, I've got Becoming Ted on my shelf. I got it at Gaze the Word in London and I had very big plans to also read that before we talked to you, but then I had to read all the other books for the podcast, so I haven't read it yet. Um, But I think Albert Entwistle was like this really cosy, and again, but see, there's still lots of themes in Albert's story that were really sad and heartbreaking as well. So, Yeah. I think this is one of those things that's really interesting with books and publishing is that, you know, you know, you've got your publisher and your team at your, Mm. you know, publisher saying like, oh, it's different. We're going for a different readership and everything. And you think, well, how is it (laughs) different? Like, it's barely like it's a different story, but like, is it that much different? It's not like it's necessarily a different genre or anything. And I think sometimes... Even Michelle, you saying before that it feels like more of a serious story. A Is that bit. just because it goes for so Maybe long? It's a like bit people longer, think yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. like this like this long time span, you know, it's twenty years of their lives, mm. like this saga. Like sometimes even that yeah. makes it seem more serious because it's not like a summer where they get together and then the book ends. I actually comp- I completely agree. Like yeah. that seems lighter. I agree, Caitlin. I think Becoming Ted and Albert Entwistle had um, kind of neater, self-contained story arcs, much simpler. Um, mm. This does go on over 20 years. There's a dual time frame and the past tense yeah. narrative is um, it's not entirely chronological. 
So um, yeah, it feels certainly when I was. It's like saga doesn't feel like quite the right word, but you know when people say like oh like a big family saga and it could be like this multi generational story that like spans a long time and it's like it's, all this information. Yeah, like it's not. I don't know, it's not that, like, but it is more than. Yeah, like you say, but Caitlin, it, it's more it's than just more. a summer. It's like, and it's more than just a few events. It really yeah. is unpicking their whole life and their friendship. And maybe maybe it yeah. feels more as well because we've got two very different people in Guy and Danny and their experiences, whereas, um, you know, with Albert, we just sort of had his perspective. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's like what feels different. You're right. And I made Guy and Danny very different on purpose because this time I also wanted to explore. Uh, there's a bro- I think there's a broader outlook. There's a more ambitious outlook. I wanted to look at social issues, not just the gay experience. So um, you've got social mm. class and the difference in their backgrounds. Um, Danny, yeah. Danny is very working class from a very humble background. Guy is from a privileged background. And I wanted to explore the um, influence that can have on the um, course of somebody's life. Because when I was growing up in the working class north in the 1980s, I had um, such a hard time because of being gay, the world's response to my gayness rather than my, me being mm. gay it was the world's response to my gayness and the homophobic yeah. bullying. And that I slightly overlooked um, the influence that my social class had on the course of my life. And mm. I went to state schools, I went to a comprehensive, I worked really hard and went to Cambridge University. And when I was there, I was with a lot of upper middle class um, students and I therefore thought oh class hasn't had any influence on my life whatsoever it's just been the gay thing I don't think I could deal with handling it actually class snobbery because I just had to deny it existed because the gay thing had been such a massive obstacle to overcome and then but it's only later in life that I have started to get my head around the horrific class snobbery that I've had at every stage and still have and I really wanted without without Mm. um being angry I wanted to work this into um a very human story and have something to say about that here so maybe that's why it feels a bit more epic and broader in outlook than the other book yeah and that's yeah, actually, I think yeah. all of these elements come into. You've it. actually yeah. sort of that's that was going to be one of our questions as well of like looking at why why was it so important to you, I guess to look at the intersection of these things through Danny's experience because you do sort of have some mm. scenes, you know, where people make fun of his accent or have all these assumptions about the yeah. north and yeah yeah or even at the very beginning when they when Guy and Danny go to um, one of the gay bars not on a student night and he's like it's so expensive you know and like other people don't think about those things it's you know it's it is we all have those you know you think about those things or you don't yeah so it is a huge part it's true seriously Caitlin I am now um 48 Mm. and um I have spent (laughs) so much of my life worrying about money and there's been times, yeah. there's been times, um, you gave, uh, Michelle gave a very nice uh, little potted bio at the beginning. There's been times when I've been in high earning, high paid media jobs. Um, but that fear never leaves you. 
you know, and also it's, you know, I've had ups and downs in my career and I've had publishing deals being dropped, all the rest of it. Um, the terror of not being able to pay the rent or the mortgage, if somebody doesn't have that, their life, I think that's kind of when people talk about it's privilege, so their life is just yeah. so much easier. Yeah. Even um, I've been talking about this with a friend recently um, and we were talking about it in terms of mental health and, um, you know, just saying that if you are in a position where, say, you have a job where you're, you know, you're paid a salary, you're not on a contract or you're not like zero hours or something, then if you need sick leave to work on your mental health and and you're really struggling, you can take that time. But if you are in a position where you are living, you know, month to month on your paycheck um, and you're struggling, and obviously, especially at this time of year, we're going into winter, obviously the heating's getting more expensive over here. Um, You know, if you, you, you literally can't really put your health first when you otherwise you are not going to have you're not going to be able to eat you're not going to be able to heat your house like it's so different and you know I have not had those not 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 had those worries for a long time but practically haven't had to worry for a while but the hangover of seeing my parents going through that experiencing things when I was a child and never being like always just have it I mean and you know, I say this, like, we always just had enough and it was great, but it was like the the anxiety was always there. You were always aware of it. So I think we were privileged and that yeah. we, we were okay. But actually, you know, then I think of people who never have to worry about that and you think, God, that must be nice. That must well, be nice. It's, it's interesting when, you know, talking about mental health and anxiety and these things. And obviously one love starts when the two characters move away to university, 2002. In those days, um, you were quite far away from home, quite cut off from home, or it felt Mm. like. I was at university in the Mm. 90s. It really felt like that before the digital um, revolution. And um, it was frightening. And actually, if you're going and you're in the closet as a gay man, what I remember about going to university is two things. The class thing, thinking I literally spoke a different language to all these upper middle class private school educated kids. I literally mm. spoke a different language. People mm. blithely tossed the term around imposter syndrome. It was like I was on another planet. I mean, I just, it was like I'd been brought up <laughs> on another planet. It was unbelievable. And also, on top of that anxiety, in my head was, um, I'd been hated universally for being gay for so much of my life. Um, what are they going to, are they going to accept me? Are they going to hate me? And I wanted to work these worries into the characters, Danny and Guy, and explore them through them. But what I also didn't want to do is have it too black and white, where the um, working class character from the humble background has had this awful struggle and and the and the upper middle class when everything's been easy for him. So what I did was I flipped it Mm. So that actually Guy, who is the privileged and in inverted commas one, has also had major struggles in his life. And actually, if you look yeah. at the parental response to Danny and Guy's gayness, Danny mm. from the humble um, yeah. Mid- um, yeah. working class background has a brilliant single mom who is very accepting and goes out of her way to make his life 
um, better and make him feel um, loved for who he is and celebrated for who he is. Whereas Guy's mum and dad are an absolute nightmare. Oh, so horrible. <laughs> yeah. Horrible, horrible. They're people. not good. So horrible. <laughs> I hated them. <laughs> they, just they were actually really good fun to write. Yeah, so you did mention obviously before that you know some of your experiences are in in the book as well you know do you think that potentially I guess because of the way that this book unfolds from university and stuff do you think you've put more of your own experiences growing up into this than than your previous novels this so my the first novel I started writing was the Madonna of Bolton which was um, not the first one to be published because I had to fight for that for 10 years to get it published. And that... We are going to ask you about your publishing journey later. Ah, well, so I'll tell yeah. you all about that. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll like yeah, to go I'll over I'll tell that. you all about that. But um, in response to this question, that was very... Well, that was well I always say you can only... I was saying this when I did this event in Cambridge earlier this week. When people say mm. write about what you know, you can change the details of the biography and the surface stuff you can research that kind of thing but you have to have felt the emotions and yeah. the Madonna of, the Madonna yeah. of Bolton was the closest to my life with the surface details and the um, biography although I did still change a lot but all the emotions I felt in that one and this one slightly less so but I did put um in terms of the emotions, yeah, I just put everything into it. And actually working on it for over nearly five years, I kept going back and putting more and more in. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, was... I think I felt that um, too around, you know, there's a there's a scene in which um, Danny's at some diversity awards and he's sort of looking around being like, funny, you know, this person refused me for a while because the character wasn't gay in the script and now they're all on this and so I did think oh maybe like that's also sort of come from your experiences seeing the the inside of the media world I guess as well oh so it is interesting doing really early interviews about this book because you don't know what people are going to pick up on and um yeah I um that's really interesting that you picked up on that yes so Danny is an actor um at a time um, it's set between 2002 and 2022, the book, the 20 year time frame. Mm-hmm. And when he's an actor for the first half of that, and it's not work, well, not when he's at university, but then when he does it professionally and it's not working, it's before the diversity revolution, if you like, and people actually being aware of these things. And I was never an actor, but I was doing media jobs, often in front of the camera. Um, in this kind of transitional period and my gayness, the visual um, representation of it and oral representation of it um, was commented on constantly. And um, I mean, we're all, we're all on a journey actually, aren't we? I'm sure I had, um, I'm sure I was conditioned to believe certain things growing up. And if you'd met me in my late teens, I would have been a, reflection of that and you do have to you know it's difficult isn't it somebody said to me I remember years ago when there was a government minister obviously conservative who um, was appointed equalities minister and she voted against all the um, equality um, 
bills for LGBTQ plus people. And some, and she said, when they asked her why she voted against gay marriage, she said, I was wrong. I've changed my mind. Um, if you want to wipe out homophobia, you have got to let homophobes change their minds. And mm -hmm. actually, um, much as I couldn't stand the woman, she was right. <laughs> Um, we yeah. don't just want yeah. to wait, for, you know, yeah. she's right. You have to, um, and I don't think that the it's the responsibility of the oppressed to educate the oppressor, but um, unless we engage with these people and allow them to change their minds, and yeah, I was just, that scene and that whole um, section of the book is kind of commenting on, he, he suffers because of prejudice and then is... Um, thrust into a situation where these people who've made him suffer are celebrating their lack of prejudice. Um, and yeah, I've been in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really interesting you say that though about like, because Caitlin and I commented on this in when we talked about the book um, Straight Expectations by Callum McSwiggan earlier in the season. Yes, I was going to say this. Which I've yeah, also read. A... I've also read. Yeah. I've absolutely loved it. <laughs> so good. Oh. It's so good. In fact, it either yeah. was it was either you or Josh posting about it on Instagram that had it on my radar as well. So yeah, I, I definitely like it. Oh, there yeah. you go. Look <laughs> at all these connections. Wow. Um but <laughs> I think there's a there's a, a bit of that in there where, you know, there is and we we already talk, kind of talked about it there's a the situation where someone is bullied and then later on you know it tries to apologize for that and the the people are like no I don't want to accept your apology which is that absolutely you can do that but then when the when the situations are reversed by the end of the book he can see that actually yeah maybe we do need to let people change their minds and I often say mm. I often say this like I think that one of the many things that's wrong with with us at the moment is that we do sort of we do expect people to either form an opinion super quickly about things and we don't respect enough people saying actually I I don't know enough about this to have an opinion that's okay mm. um but the other thing is well it takes them more time to learn and grow yeah and, and I think the other thing is we get too stuck yeah. especially I think it especially happens with politicians and I've seen it a lot as a journalist as well of people being like oh they're changing what they said they're changing their mind they're doing a u-turn and in some cases it's bad but in others I don't think we give enough respect to people saying, actually, yes, I was wrong <clears throat> and I changed my mind mm. and I shouldn't have done that. And oh my a, God. A good example you, of... I, was, I was just going to just, before you give us that example, absolutely do. Um, it's so interesting you're saying this because these are two things that I say all the time. Why is a U-turn always represented as a sign of weakness? in a politician when yes sometimes it is but it isn't yeah. always it's actually a sign of strength and I'm yeah. not sure I I will bang on about the things I know about as I have been doing in this interview but um <laughs> I will also say I'm sorry I just don't know about that I don't know enough yeah um, and I think and that... it certainly doesn't mean that you don't care as exactly. well exactly exactly mm. yeah um the example I was going to give as well of um actually like um it's sort of it's sort of separate but I don't know Matt if you've seen on channel four the show banged up um the new one that's just been on highly recommend watching it it's only like four half hour episodes I think basically celebrities or celebrities um go into prison and it's but it's like a um 
it's a prison that closed and they're, they're ex-criminals. They're reformed now, but they basically are asked to act the way that they acted in prison. Um, and it is talking about... Like an experiment. Yeah, and it's all to sort of show uh-huh. and sort of break conceptions about prison. And I also read a really great book called um, A Bit <laughs> of a Stretch. Um, and I've just got the second book um, of his downstairs called Time After Time, which is about why people have to, like why people keep going back to prison anyway. On there were two conservative politicians and I actually ended up having a lot of respect for them, even though one of them was that guy who watched um, porn in Parliament and then was like, oh, yeah, I was looking for tractors or something. I don't know if you remember that being yeah. a news item. <laughs> so he literally just got roasted the whole time because he's like, yes, I was the stupid MP who watched porn. <laughs> and it was, it was quite funny. But, you know, they they did and they had these discussions. It had one of the Gogglebox people on it and he was like, no, nah, if you, you've made these decisions – you know, and then the guy, the people actually said to him, like, you know, like I was getting beat up at home when all you know is, is, and this is the thing, I'm not excusing crime at all, but it's really interesting to watch and it's so much more nuanced than we give it credit for and just saying put them behind bars isn't the solution and that's what the whole show is mm-hmm. about. But I think that was a really great example of people seeing people in real time have their minds changed learn yeah. and change except for mind. this one journalist yeah. who wrote for the daily mail um who was just who literally just went in there and was like i'm right but it just was horrible and i just absolutely hated him and Ugh. it was it was so and it was like it was literally like he was like not gonna have his mind changed about anything and it was just i i yeah i was like oh my god i can't believe i actually have respect for a conservative politician <laughs> well there's, a, there's one or two of them usually the ones towards the center um yeah who um, are all right. Um, But, um, yeah, it's interesting hearing you talking about it. I think, you know, talking about this book for one of the first times, I think I did. I think my motivation Mm. when I was writing it was to change people's minds, to make people think. I mean, if you have that as a headline, it makes it sound like your book's going to be really worthy and a slog of a read. But um, I think you can make people think and change their minds by really engaging their emotions, really mm. making them look at their own lives yeah, absolutely. and surprising yeah. them. And um, I think that was, the more I think about it, the more I realise that was um, a big motivation for me with this book. And I think that's probably why I care the most about it, actually, this one. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's so interesting talking to you as one of the first interviews, like before you've talked yeah. about the book a lot. Like I always find that interesting when people tell us that it's one of the first interviews they've done. They go like, oh, yeah, like you really get to talk about it more and think yeah. about it. Uh, it's interesting to see that happen in real time for yeah. you. <laughs> it is totally, Caitlin. What sometimes happens, you get a sweet spot. The early interviews, you're working it all out. Um, but you get you get yeah. the sweet spot um, when you've done a few where um, you can give pithy, well thought through answers about things, and you know, but then you get to a stage when you've done a load of interviews, yeah. when you're trotting out a pre-prepared pattern. It gets a bit more robotic. It does get yeah. a bit more robotic. Yeah. And um, you're, we're in that early stage, but I'm glad to be doing it with you two because you <laughs> get it and you yeah. get it and you're intelligent. We're all coming from a similar place in terms of our emotions and outlook on life and, human values so um it's good to be working it out with you 
I feel like I have like reverse. Oh, I feel like you. I've like reverse class snobbery of the UK where I'm like, ugh, Southerners. <laughs> People, yeah, <I> like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. Interestingly, Michelle, I was brought up. So my mum and dad were both in council houses in um, the north of England. Um, they went to grammar schools. I didn't grow up on a council estate, but um, culturally, it was very much. We were working class, and we were brought up to distrust and hate Southerners and poshies. They were the enemy, um, and that was part of our identity that we were different to them. And I don't think that is um, a good state of affairs. And I think yeah. it promotes vision. No. When I went to Cambridge, um, most of the friends I ended up with were from upper middle class backgrounds. So it is, you know, a lot of what I was writing about was unpicking and exploring that. Although we're making it sound like the whole book is about, <laughs> it isn't. But I, I definitely no. realised, I realised, and I think part of the reason it took me so long to hit my stride as a novelist was because there is, there are a few scenes in the book where Danny goes to work. After failing as an actor, he becomes an actor's agent. And that isn't a spoiler because you realise that in the present tense narrative mm. right in the first scene. But um, he has mm. an older, obviously, a generation above him, boss, who was also from a similar working class background. And she says to him, um, you have to understand how much harder it is for people like us. We don't have a set path to follow. Um, we never knew, you know, that saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. We never knew yeah. anybody from our background doing this kind of job, there is no set path to follow. We have to work it out for ourselves and create it for ourselves. And I only realized that, as I say later in life, um, the struggle I've had to get to where I wanted to, because I just had no idea about where I wanted to get to or how to do yeah. it. And, um, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people are like that. And it is so much better now, obviously, with... Um, the online world and you can look things up but it's still but it, that doesn't mean to say it's gone away and it's interesting yeah. talking to you two actually from a new world country where um <laughs> social class is so my husband is south african um and obviously they had very different divisions in their society um and it is interesting seeing this whole because i'm only just like i say working out how it had an impact on my life, rather belatedly. It's interesting seeing mm. things through his eyes, through your eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, every society has divisions. Yeah. I think Australia is quite different when it comes to, but it's still I there. would say, I yeah, mean, class is my class family is not moves. as it's not as pronounced. Well, this is so, so could you no. say where we're from? Where we're from, I think has the same sort of reputation in Australia as what the North sometimes is considered in yeah. terms of like political views into like where we're from is considered like the sort of the, the dumb redneck state sort of. Sometimes. Well, so it's, so it's <laughs> yeah. interesting. Bogan is the Australian uh, okay. term. <laughs> oh, really? So it's interesting because there's social class, but there's also <laughs> wealth. And the two are slightly different things because there's cultural. Mm. And, and do you have, so Caitlin, you were going to say something. Do you have. Yeah, um, sorry, Caitlin. Just, is it just about money oh. or is it, um, or is there also cultural things? 
going up. Oh, yeah, you can be a cashed up bogan where you have money but no taste. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I was I was kind of going yeah. to say that my family often, we kind of joke like my family moved from Adelaide, which is in South Australia in a capital city um, where we lived by the beach and I went to a private school to a regional area and you know, we sort of joke like my family when we, you know, when I was in primary school in Adelaide, we went like camping over Easter, and my best friend went to Greece. Mm. You know, like Adelaide all these is different things posh and in Australia because that's where the free settlers posh. went, like not the convicts. So yeah, it's got this reputation it's kind of, of being a posh, posh and they have more a, like a more English accent, more English sounding yeah. accents um, down there. <laughs> but but then in regional Queensland. Yes, there's this thing of like being a rich bogan, as Michelle said, because people can be um, from rural and regional areas um, and, you know, have big properties and big farms or work in the mines and earn a lot of money. I would say like, yeah, if you work in the mines, like, yeah, earn a lot of money and like you're buying all these cars. Actually, if you ever get, if I don't, I can't remember if it's on Netflix here, Matt, but if you ever get the chance to watch an Australian TV show called Upper Middle Bogan, that is the perfect explanation (laughs) of middle class versus Bogan culture in Australia. It's really interesting hearing you both say this because here we have a thing where upper middle class people will often look down on working class people who've made money and say that they're flashy and gauche mm. and nouveau riche is the term. Yeah. And um, it's considered an insult. But um, I'm like, well, how is, you know, the only riche I could ever be is nouveau. And um, <laughs> if you've made your own wealth, surely that's better than being old. Be celebrated. Yeah. Old rich. And you basically just you know, I know. Surely new money is better yeah. than old yeah. money. Are we not at a point as a world where we're I'll against I'll take old any money. money. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> I jest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very so all of this stuff about yeah. class and everything is so interesting. And, I mean, everyone knows, you know, it's very specific, I think, in yeah. the UK like and which, different to a lot of other areas. So it's very interesting to read about. Stuff. Like, it's very yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the other big topics, I suppose, in One Love that we wanted to ask you about is um, there's a lot in Danny's story about his body image and relationship to his body. Um, it was actually some of the hardest stuff to read, I think. I think. I think that was, yeah, yeah. But I think it's something that um, people, I suppose, associate like having that issue with um, – not associate the issue with being a gay man, but it is a commonly known thing about like needing to be really fit and really attractive and like that kind of extra body image pressure in the queer community. Um, why was that something that you wanted to explore, particularly for Danny, I suppose, in relation to his friendship with oh, Guy as well? Out, Caitlin. Um, this is another one. <laughs> really good question. But it's another <laughs> issue I've not properly... It's, it's a, big a big question. question and it's one I've not properly thought through. Um um, mm. Well, because it's it's present in the novel right from the very beginning, with like Guy sort of immediately being seen as like very attractive. Yeah, like, exactly. and Danny sort of Danny sort of mentions that you know yeah. he's sort of really watching what he eats and like is really conscious of that. And mm. I think maybe maybe yeah, that was in the like, present day timeline for as me. Well. Um, and I don't know about you, Caitlin, as well, but obviously, like, this is something that us as women, like, as straight women, um, we've had a lot. Yeah, look, we yeah. have, we all have our issues with it, but um, 
it was it was hard to read those bits I've got to say oh well that, well that's good because um sorry if it made it hard for you but um <laughs> it's because it but yeah, it is the intention it's meant to be. um so so Danny so the other big thing it is related to body image. I'm not getting away. I'm not dodging the question. Um, Guy <laughs> is in amongst the gay community. It has always been the case that the very feminine camp presenting are looked down on. And mm. um, the currency is all about how masculine you are and how you can pass for straight and straight acting, straight presenting, manly, masculine, however you want to call it, is considered hot. And... They're the kind of mm. ultimate prize. Guy, the upper middle class one, is gorgeous looking, very masculine, has an incredible body. He is literally like the... So that, So I wanted to start... And he's a rugby, rugby player. player. Like, you know, there's... Rock climbing, he's got this incredible bod. And he represents the kind of, um, you know, the air-gay. Um, and Danny, because they have such a representation... Um, in queer media and also the mainstream media, um, Danny feels mm. he's not measuring up. So there's lots of things in his life. We've talked about social class. He had awful, horrendous, homophobic bullying when he was growing up, and he's not very good looking. And he suddenly finds this amazing release as a gay man when he goes to the gay village in Manchester and he feels accepted, he meets his people, but um, there is this stick to beat him with that he isn't hot and he doesn't have a good body and he's camp and um, nobody wants to get off with him. And basically all these things feed into his belief that he isn't good enough. And um, the interesting thing about my books is if you look at things like the Madonna of Bolton, Albert Entwistle, you've mentioned, Becoming Ted, they're, they're often about somebody who feels, a lead character who feels they're not good enough for whatever reason, looks outside themselves to see something that can make them better. And then, without giving too much away in any of the um, books, comes to the conclusion that that ability to be happy and self-love was inside them all along. So if you've got Charlie... Madonna of Bolton, mm. Th that's the one that's most based on my life. That's about a working class boy growing up in the 80s, has a hard time being gay in a northern working class town, clings on to Madonna and her message of self-belief and positivity as a kind of spirit guide to get through it. And so he's looking to Madonna to make him better. Um, if you look at Becoming Ted... He's in his 40s, he's dumped by his husband, devastated, then actually thinks, you know what, this is finally a chance to put myself first and to follow my dream, my long-suppressed dream of becoming a drag queen. How's that for an elevator pitch? That's in one sentence. And, um, <laughs> and he realises, through his drag alter ego, accessing parts of him that he didn't know existed, that actually those parts of him were always in him. And that, that ability to be happy was always in himself. Mm. What Danny does, he thinks, um, so I can't give too much away, but towards the end, there's some flashback scenes. Right at the end, there's flashback scenes to the, his start at university. And they allow you to see really clearly that what he thinks from the start is, if this gorgeous man who represents everything that's amazing will just love me, he will make me better. 
And actually, mm. Um, again, without giving too much away, he comes to a very different conclusion because he has to realise that it's not about somebody else. It's not about something outside you. Um, you know, and yeah. actually body image and all that, um, he is, I think that is partly based on my experience because when I came of age, the only gays I really saw were the hot ones who had sex with everyone and were drunk in bars and then actually as a kind of clever, quirky, creative gay, took me a while to find my tribe and I spent, or my subculture should I say, um, I, I spent a long time trying to fit in with that, get down the gym, look hot, um, be funny and tell everybody dirty stories and be the life and soul of the party. Um, and actually, um, I spent ages trying to fit in with that, but I eventually found my kind of subculture and my tribe, which was creative, quirky, clever gays. And also not just gays, but straight people. And not everybody has to be everything. And yeah, Danny has, um, Danny has a journey. Mm. And yeah, he does um, think, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got lots of young nephews and lots of young straight men, friends in my life. I do find it interesting looking at their approach to body image because it is very different to what it was when I was their age. You know, when I was at university, there wasn't, there weren't gyms for recreational use and the men didn't take protein shakes mm. and talk about games and shredding. And my teenage nephews <laughs> all know about that kind of thing. So I suppose that is getting closer to the female experience that you've had to deal with for a long time <laughs> yeah yeah well I think it's changing a lot for everyone I think and you know the book the start of the book I should say is set in like 2002 and I think the early 2000s were a terrible time for everyone's body <laughs> yeah. image terrible. so I think hopefully you know it's all getting a bit better yeah, for everyone but it's still really hard yeah. okay I want to hear all about the crazy publishing journey story for crowdfunding oh right Bolton. so my first book which i've given you the elevator that. pitch for um when i started sending that out <laughs> when i started sending that out um <laughs> yes, to agents and then agents started sending it out to publishers it was rejected 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 and for years over several rounds of submission several rewrites and at the beginning, some people said it wasn't good enough. And I'm sure in those, you know, back then it wasn't right. But what I realised over time, as I kept reworking it, was nobody was saying it wasn't good enough. They were all saying it's too niche. There's no market for it. And um, I, you know, and basically what they used to say to me was things like, one editor mm. in particular said, if you write novels that are, this is again cultural snobbery, if you write novels that um, are going to win literary prizes and they're aimed at very intelligent people, it's fine to have gays, um, gay characters. But if you're writing books and women who shop at Asda, again, marker of classes, which supermarket you shop at, which is interesting. If you write novels for um, women who shop at Asda, um, they're not going to be able to empathise with gays. And I thought, well, that's a lot of crap. Because um, I, you know, 
um, watch soaps and things where they all, all the working class Northern soaps, Corrie, Emmerdale, um, Hollyoaks, they all have queer characters in them with romantic storylines, or they have done for years. And at the time, well, this went on for years and years and years, I was rejected. And when I was then editor-in-chief at Attitude magazine, which is the big magazine for gay men in this country, um, by that stage, 2016, 2017, there were so many out gay stars and um, I was being invited onto all these shows, whether it was Sky News or the Today programme or BBC Breakfast, to comment on gay stories in the news that people were interested in. And I was thinking that isn't the case anymore. It just isn't the case that gay stories are niche. I was writing for all the big papers about gay stories. And then, um, so I went to Unbound, which is the crowdfunding mm. publisher. And I said to them, I don't just want to quote from this book. I want to whip up a storm in the press. And I said, what is your record for crowdfunding a novel? They said two weeks. I said, right, I'm going to do it in one. And I went and I, I probably abused my position at the magazine because I got loads of celebs we'd had in it to support my campaign. And I took all my rejection letters to The Guardian, who printed them. <laughs> and we whipped up this outrage at what was being said. And we did indeed crowdfund the book um, in record time, seven days. And then it came out and I was on the rain, Kelly and all these shows. And it was fantastic. And everybody got behind it and it became a hit. Um, but it was interesting. I actually think so. One of the motivations for writing One Love is covering that 20-year period when everything changed for gay men in this country. Everything changed. And the Madonna of Bolton, I was writing it, then getting it published in that 20-year period. And I actually think if one of the early publishers, when, if one of the early publishers had taken it and given it a low-key yeah. release without much push, um, I'm not sure it would have got through. Um, I think the journey for that book had to be, I think the outrage at the homophobia it experienced from within the publishing industry, I think that really powered it um, to punch through and people felt outraged and got behind mm -hmm. it. And, um, and maybe if it had been published when it was first submitted, it would have been too niche then because people weren't ready. I mean, we have all been on a journey together and... Um, you know, allies have played an important role. That's why in things like Albert Entwistle, what I really wanted to do, I mean, that is a book, for anybody who hasn't read it, about a gay man in his 60s who sets off to find the lost love of his life, who he hasn't seen since they were teenagers nearly 50 years ago. And what I wanted to do there was contrast in the flashback scenes how horrendous it was for gay men in those days and how much better it is now when he sets off in search of him and he gets the help and support of his, his wider community. And part of that was I wanted all the allies to feel proud of the role that they've played in making our society a better place because we couldn't have done it on our own. But that, you know, very much is an ongoing motivation for me when writing. It was behind... Um, looking at that 20-year period in One Love. And, yeah, when I look back on the journey that the Madonna of Bolton had over that time and my publishing journey, um, 
it was very much a part of it, actually. It was very much a part of it. And it's been a struggle. And I still actually feel exhausted by it. I still feel completely exhausted by it. That's why it's really, not, you know, I, I had such a battering for so long. Yeah. And actually, yeah. having had a battering in the early stages of my life at school for so long, um, it reopened old wounds. And when you have those wounds, anybody who's been bullied at school for different um, yeah. reasons, you yeah. can be very sensitive. And the interesting thing about me is I think that sensitivity is a superpower when I'm writing. I don't think I could write with any emotional depth um, if I hadn't suffered in for years in the early stages of my life. But um, I wanted to explore that with Danny. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there's lots of scenes where um, he's um, disrespected through life, his adult life, and they rip open those old wounds again. And, um, you know, so that was important for me to do. You know, the story with the Madonna of Bolton is, like, that's a crazy publishing story, a- but you're right. It's It kind of seems like it all happened the way it was meant to and the way that you know you try and try and then like yeah the world's finally ready for a book like that yeah. you know it you're right the, that is the one of the things with one love is that you know 2002 to 2022 a lot changed for the whole world but like I know, I in know. the community that's an insane 20 years everything changed and going from being mm. hated to being loved it's a lot to get your head around it really is a lot to get yeah. your head around. But it's, it's interesting talking about the, the Madonna of Bolton because I used to say this book is about feeling like you don't fit in, feeling like you're not good enough, and the healing power of music and popular culture. And mm. so many people have come to me and said they love that book and it resonated with them. And they all, they often say, and I don't even like Madonna, but I used to, <laughs> they often say, yeah. when my mum and dad we're getting divorced or something, another completely different experience in their lives Mm -hmm. that made them suffer. They used to sit in their room and listen to XYZ artists and they felt healed and better and they weren't on their own. And this artist was the only person who understood what they were going through. And that can be really powerful when you don't fit in and you do feel alone. I wanted to explore that and I didn't think that that was, um, an experience specific to the limited to the queer community and I still don't and actually Mm. it was quite gratifying to be proven right with that book (laughs) yeah 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 right because you did actually you know we I was sort of going to ask you about how you felt how things had sort of shifted a bit since the Madonna of Bolton and I think that you've sort of covered that in your answer anyway so fun fun show uh guilty pleasure for a lot of people not guilty but you know this is also my every Saturday night. I watch Strictly. I love Strictly. You listen to our Josh Silver episode, so you'll know that I couldn't leave that interview without mentioning John and Johannes, obviously, because John was Northern and this idea of seeing, you know, someone represented on TV. But I wanted to ask you about this year's partnership. And then I found out that Leighton Williams, who is paired with the lovely Nikita on Strictly, um, Leighton was actually the person who did the audiobook for Albert Entwistle. He was, and he did a brilliant job. And I've known, so Leighton's from Bury, and um, I was born in Bury, brought up in Bolton, went to school in Bury. 
So um, I've kind of got two hometowns. And um, Ellie, Ellie, who dances with Vito in this year's Strictly, who I really fancy. I think Vito's so hot. It's unbelievable. Um, she's she's also gorgeous. From, she's gorgeous, <laughs> isn't it? It's like unreal. And then she's also from Berry. But yeah, um, Leighton, I've known for years. He's brilliant. He's amazing. I love him. And I think he's doing an amazing job. And funny enough, I just texted him the other day to tell him he was doing an amazing job. Because I think he... <laughs> He, um, I haven't spoken to him, but I think he has had some um, hate and um, negativity. And, um, you know, you do still get that. But I think they're doing an amazing job. I think these people mm. um, are, you know, all these experiences I've talked about growing up, not seeing yourself represented, whether it's social class, creative careers, gayness, um, gender nonconformity, whatever. Um, you know, people like Leighton are completely changing the conversation. And it's difficult for those of us caught in, a, in this transitional period because everything is so much better than it was. And we've got to remember that. And it's amazing. But um, you still take a battering. And, you know, when, yeah. we were gro when we were growing up, that battering will have created wounds that can be reopened. And... Like I say, I, I've not, um, I only texted Leighton the other day. I've not spoken to him, but um, I, I, um, I think it can be hard. You're, whether you like it or not, you're um, basically an activist on the front line if you're somebody like yeah. him. And I definitely felt like that with the yeah. Madonna of Bolton, with my publishing journey. Um, I felt like I had to take the battering to make the publishing industry sit up and be ashamed of itself. And now... It's much easier for lots of queer writers. And I'm not saying that was me single-handedly or anything, but, um, you, you know, it, it did um, yeah. create a conversation and um, that just wasn't yeah. being had. And that's brilliant. And we can all be really proud of ourselves, those of us who do that kind of thing. But it can still, it can be, it's like I said to you, it can be exhausting. It can be exhausting and you mm. do feel bruised and battered sometimes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, I, and, it, and it absolutely breaks my heart to hear that, that people, and I know that people will have been, people did the same for John and Johannes as well. Um, but Leighton and Nikita are doing absolutely amazingly. And actually, I think it, I think that them and Ellie and Vito will definitely be in the final. <laughs> I love I know, it. So an old berry final. Can you imagine if it's an old berry final? That would be amazing. And Gorka, oh. who's also gorgeous, I'm pretty sure lives in Barry now. Um, near my oh, sister. really? Well, so, yeah, because um, yeah. Emma's, oh, Emma's from the, yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I also absolutely I love Gorka. Do you have a favourite dance that they've done so far this season? I will link it in the show notes. Um, probably the Argentine tango, but I did actually, they did Couples Choice at Blackpool. Mm -hmm. um, so I always loved the Blackpool episode because any of those of us who grow up in the Northwest, as, as Leighton and Ellie both said <laughs> when they were on the show, um, you go for day trips, to, you go to Blackpool all the time. That's, that's how a seaside town. And um, Blackpool Tower Ballroom is the most amazing place. Anybody who's read Albert Entwistle will know that there are key scenes set in Blackpool Tower Ballroom. And um, I always have, there's always a, an emotional um, 
um, resonance when I watched the Blackpool episode of Strictly. So I actually think that their, um, the couple's choice dance they did with the pole, I loved that. Because also the interesting thing about that one Funny. was sometimes, and I've been told this in my publishing journey, um, be warm and fluffy and cuddly as a gay man. Don't frighten people off. Don't bring in a sexual mm. edge. And, mm. you know, um, as we've discussed, One Love is bringing in more of a sexual edge um, than I was allowed to show in um, Albert Entwistle and Becoming Ted. Actually, what I liked about that dance that they did in Blackpool was it was sexy. It yeah. was really sexy. And... Yeah, it was um, so I'd possibly say that one actually. Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, I, <laughs> no, love, I love it. it. I love it. I could talk I about love it all day. So please let us know where people can find and follow you and tell us the date that One Love is available. One Love is available on the 18th of January, and people can find me on all the social media channels. I do Instagram the most at Matt Kane Writer. Kane is C-A-I-N at Matt Kane Writer. And I must also say very quickly, I have a short novel coming out in April. I don't know if anybody has heard of Quick Reads and the short books they do to get people into reading who wouldn't normally read. So they've got to be accessible and um, fun. And I've done an Enemies to Lovers rom-com about um, a closeted premiership footballer who falls in love with a woke queer journalist who is sent to interview him. And um, the reason I wanted to bring it up, so that's coming out in April for World Book Night and um, the reading agency who run Quick Reads, they give away lots and everything. And um, the reason I wanted to bring that up is it's set in Toddington, the town where Albert Entwistle is set. And it isn't a sequel as such, but some characters and locations make a reappearance. That's oh, all that I'm going to say. Yeah, that sounds excellent. <laughs> oh, lovely. And I should tell you. I should tell you what it's called. It's called Game On. Game On. But yeah, <laughs> oh, that's um, great. fun connections. Okay, wonderful. Excellent. Well, Another I'm one to gonna... look forward to. Amazing. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.